problems. We want to pursue unity. It's hard to do that relationally when there are so many people problems. So I try to speak into it from that standpoint. And then in July, we did a sermon series on, I did four sermons on Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 16, where the Apostle Paul talks a lot about unity. So this has been one of our themes throughout the year. In Psalm 133, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, these are two passages that I think are really important in the Bible when it comes to unity, and I knew that I was going to preach on it at some point. So Labor Day weekend is the weekend you get this sermon. There's a theologian named Scott McKnight who wrote a book called A Fellowship of Difference. And in this book, he talks about church, he talks about unity and diversity. And he compares diversity that we should have with the unity that we experience to eating a salad. And he said there's three ways to eat a salad. One way, as you see in this picture, is what he calls the American way. You get a little iceberg lettuce, some croutons, a bunch of cheese, and then a bunch of salad dressing, whatever it would be, and you pour the salad dressing on top so that everything tastes the same. Does anybody eat your salad this way? If you eat a salad, that's probably how you eat it. Maybe you feel like it's healthy, but you don't realize the salad dressing has a lot of calories. There's the American way of eating a salad, according to Scott McKnight. And then there's the weird way. The weird way is where he said you separate all the vegetables out and you eat them separately. I don't know of anybody that eats their salad. Does anybody eat their salad this way? Uh, Not me, but apparently there's some people in the world who eat their salad this way. That's what he calls the weird way. And then there's the right way. And the right way, he says, is where you take your your greens, your your lettuce, your spinach, whatever it may be, uh, and then you put your carrots and your olives and cucumbers, tomatoes, whatever else you want to put in the salad, maybe some crumbled up cheese, all that stuff that you're supposed to put in it. You mix it together, and then he says you pour a little olive oil on top, and that olive oil will help extenuate each taste and each flavor instead of drowning it out with ranch dressing. He's, according to Scott McKnight, that's the right way to eat a salad, and he compares the right way to eat a salad to the church. And he said, the church is supposed to be like that. We're not like the American way to eat a salad where we all taste the same and look the same because we just but drown it in uh, salad dressing, and we're not supposed to be the weird way where we everything's separate and stays separate, but instead we're supposed to be mixed in together And with our own distinct flavors and tastes, somehow mixed together in some form of unity. So borrowing Scott McKnight's phrase, the church is a fellowship of difference. We are all very different from each other in a lot of ways, and yet the Bible consistently calls us to unity even though we're diverse. And the church is supposed to be God's show and tell to the world to show the world what unity looks like. And the world really needs an example of unity. So now we're going to dive a little further into uh, Psalm 133. I I read it here in the Scripture reading, and I want to read it again just so it's fresh on your mind. And then I'm going to spend a few minutes elaborating really on verse 2 and 3, but I'm going to read all three verses. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Now, I'm reading from a New Revised Standard Version. If you're reading from uh, another version, it may say when brothers, or it may say when family lives together in unity, or the NIV says when God's people live together or dwell together in unity. Verse 2, 
It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. This is a nice, short, only three verses, peaceful little song. It's easy to read. Now you can say you read an entire chapter out of the Bible at church today, and you did it twice. This is about unity and how blissful unity can be, how good and pleasant it is. And the two examples that are given in verse 2 and 3, the first example is a priest, a high priest. So Matt talked about that in his communion thoughts from the book of Hebrews, the high priest being ordained by being anointed with oil. Aaron was Israel's first high priest, and according to Exodus chapter 29, there was a certain way that the high priest would be ordained, and there was a certain oil that they were anointed with, and this oil would go down their hair and into their beard. Uh, I really like this verse. I consider this the original beard oil, and for those of you who don't have a beard, you don't know anything about beard oil. I thought about doing a demonstration today, but then I thought, Maybe I wouldn't do that because I get the microphone all oily and stuff. But the, be- the oil goes down in the hair, through the beard, and over the robe. Most commentators would say that the high priest would wear the robe and ha- would have 12 stones or 12 jewels on the robe. And those 12 jewels or stones would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So when that oil would come down the hair, through the beard, and over the collar of the robe, and over those stones... Those stones were bathed in oil, and it symbolized some form of spiritual unity. So Psalm 133, verse 2, that's what unity is like. It's like an anointing oil. And then if you take that a little further, all throughout Scripture, the anointing oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So maybe as followers of Jesus, we can view this psalm through that lens is that's what unity is like, or really that's what unity takes, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 3 of Psalm 133, the example is given of the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Geographically, that's kind of hard to explain, so I'm not going to get into that at all, but I will tell you that in Scripture, the dew represents the life-giving Word of God, and it represents God's refreshing on His people. So you take the short psalm that's about unity and how good and pleasant unity could be, and it's kind of like an anointing of oil, or unity is like the refreshing dew that comes from God. And in both verse 2 and 3, it comes down, right? The oil comes down, the dew comes down. It's not something that we work work up and send up. It's something that comes down to us. It's something that God gives us. You can take Psalm 133, John 17, Ephesians 4. You can take all these passages that talk about unity. And we know and we realize, hopefully by now, that unity is important. Unity is something that God wants us to strive towards. But the question that I keep having, I keep asking myself, especially from Psalm 133, is how do we dwell in this good and pleasant unity when we're so different from each other? Think about our differences. I don't want to dwell in there too long, but we come from different backgrounds. A lot of us come from different socioeconomic statuses, maybe a different race, a different culture. We have different personalities. We have different passions, and some of those passions and personalities are very different from each other. 
Some of us have different ways that we view and interpret Scripture. Some of us have different worship styles and song preferences, right, Tony? I mean, we have a variety of people out here with a lot of differences. We have different leadership styles. We have different ways that we connect with God. We have different spiritual gifts. How can we dwell in this good and pleasant unity when we're so different? Well, consider the fact that God, I would say God is a multi-perspective God. God is a God who gives us multiple perspectives. And just look at Scripture, and then you will see the way that God gives us different perspectives. And we'll just start with the Gospels. We don't have just one gospel. We don't just have one book in the Bible that tells us the life and the teachings of Jesus. We have how many? Just so I know you're with me. Four. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is the way that God chose to give us Jesus, through four different perspectives telling us about one Lord and one Savior. We have the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are the same, but you have them in Exodus 20, and then you also have them in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Same Ten Commandments, just slightly different perspectives. Or if you've ever read through your Old Testament, and you notice there's you know, First and Second Samuel, there's First and Second Kings, but then there's also First and Second Chronicles, and if you ever paid close attention, most of those stories and teachings overlap. A lot of them are the same, they're just told from different perspectives. You can read through the Psalms. We just read Psalm 133. There's a lot of Psalms that are taking biblical narratives and basically rewording and rewriting them into a poetic form. It's another perspective on a biblical narrative. Or just look through the New Testament and Paul's letters. A lot of the times as Paul is writing to different churches and different individuals, Paul is teaching a lot of the same core teachings But depending on who he's writing to, he might word it a little different. Or he might put it in a different spot or a different context. So we, within Scripture, we receive a multiple perspective Bible that gives us several different vantage points. And then if you look at the nature of God himself, what we would call the Trinity, we get one God and three persons. I point this out to show you that the fact that there's multiple perspectives within Scripture and within the nature of God does not mean that there is division. All that points to is diversity. And diversity is a good thing. Diversity is something that God intended with the church. God intends for the church to be very diverse and to be a fellowship of difference and yet value and respect each other and pursue unity. I'm going to give you three examples of ways that we might be different, and maybe you can find yourself in one of these ways, and then I want just to kind of take a step further and see how we can view other people through the lens of respect and, and valuing the way that they are. So one example is the leadership style. You may not consider yourself a leader, and that's okay, but we all follow somebody. We all have church leaders. We have people that lead us in life, so either you're a leader or you follow a certain type of leader. There's a guy named John Frame that uh, has this theological idea that he's kind of coined this phrase, tri-perspectivalism. Sound like a big word? Just means three perspectives. 
I wrote it up there because it sounds cool, but really that's all it means. It's three different perspectives. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity, three different perspectives and one God. And in the Old Testament, he, he takes that, that thought even further. And then if you look at the Old Testament, there's three different offices, three different leadership styles, prophet, priest, and king. And what he says and other writers and other people in the missional movement say that for most people, within a church, within a missional context, those are the three main leadership styles. So just think about this for a second. The prophet. This doesn't mean that you are a prophet, but a prophet's leadership style is focused on those who are not a part of the church. So if that's your leadership style or that's what you're passionate about, when you come to church, when you hear a sermon, when you think about the events or activities that we do as a church or the way that we spend our money, the way that you're going to think is how is this reaching out into the community, into the world? Like your number one concern and passion would be for outsiders, for those out there. If that's your style, then maybe you would fit into the category of the prophet category. Again, doesn't mean you're a prophet, this is just your leadership style. And then there's that of the priest. The priests were concerned with God's people. So if this is your leadership style or the leadership style that you prefer, this means you have a care for the people within the church, for their concerns, for their needs, for their heartaches, for their struggles, and you want to nurture them and care for them. Maybe that's your leadership style. And then the third category is that of a king, which Kings were concerned with administration, with getting tasks done and completed, so concerned with budget and money and contribution. Maybe that is your leadership style. And maybe you're thinking, oh, I don't know about any of this. Well, or maybe some of this resonates with you. So the leadership style of a prophet, priest, or king. I point this out because, you know, it's kind of a, a popular thing to think about when churches are planted to help people understand their own leadership style, and then within each church, maybe your own leadership style. But what I'm asking you is, where are you? Maybe there is one of those three that kind of resonated with you, and you're like, yeah, that would be where I would fall. And I ask you, where are you? What are you like? What is your preference? What is your style? Because we're not all the same. Only Jesus would fit the category of prophet, priest, and king. So most of us, we're going to lean towards one or the other. We're probably not going to be all three. So my point is, what if we learn to value and respect our differences? We have different leadership styles. And what if, as followers of Jesus, we said, you know what? Maybe I lean towards the prophet or priest category, but I'm definitely not great with administration, so I really value and appreciate those who are in administration or, or vice versa. Instead of looking down on others because they're different from us, we're not understanding why they think the way that they do, but if Psalm 133 says how very good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity, well, one of the ways that we do that is we value and we respect each other's differences. Or another way of looking at it is spiritual pathways. A spiritual pathway is the way that you connect with God, the way that you experience God's presence and spiritual growth. John Ortberg, in his book, God is Closer Than You Think, he takes this topic of spiritual pathways and he develops it into all sorts of categories. 
But one way to summarize your spiritual pathway, the way that you primarily connect with God, is in something I talked about two years ago on Labor Day, is either head, heart, or hands. So basically, the way that you connect with God the most is either going to be through your intellect, like maybe you come to church and you hear a sermon and and your thoughts are, are stimulated and you're thinking about Scripture in a new way or you're challenged with something you never thought of before, well, maybe you leave feeling like you got something out of it because you would be a head Christian. You connect to God through your intellect. Or maybe you're a heart Christian. Maybe you connect to God through your emotions. I'm not a super emotional person, but I know some of you, you know, Tony could lead us in a song, and there's a certain song that maybe it brings back memories from your childhood, or maybe there's just something in the words that really stirs your emotions and brings you to tears, or maybe there's a story told in the sermon or by one of our elders at the end that, that really grips you emotionally, and then you leave feeling like you got something out of it because we tapped into your emotions. So that would mean you're a heart Christian, right? This is the way that we connect with God the most. All of these kind of overlap some. And then the third category is service. And maybe you wouldn't fall into the other two, but the way that you connect with God is through being a hand Christian, through serving God. I don't know where you would be. I I mean, that's something that you could think about on your own. I, I preached a whole sermon on this two years ago, and we went to lunch at Jason's Deli after church was over. And I ran into several people from church who listened to the lesson, and they came up to me and they told me, I'm a heart Christian or I'm a head Christian. So for some of you, I know that this is like, okay, this makes sense to me. And for me, maybe it's I'm a head Christian. I, I, I grow most through the intellect. Whatever it is, where, where are you at? Maybe you're a little bit of all of them, but where are you the most? And my point of bringing this out is how do you value and respect others who are different from you? I may not be emotionally expressive like a lot of people are. But I'm not going to look down on people who are. In fact, I respect and appreciate the fact that that's the way that they connect and they can grow with God. Psalm 133, how very good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same leadership style or leadership preferences. We don't all have the same spiritual pathways in the way that we connect with God. We're different from each other, but how can we value and respect each other as we dwell together in unity? And then the third category is spiritual gifts. What is your spiritual gift? Maybe you remember that in July, on July 19th, I did a sermon, you know, the sermon series was Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, but when, on that third sermon, I, I focused on Ephesians 4, 7 through 13, and in that, Ephesians 4, 11, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, and he uses the example of, I guess, about four or five spiritual gifts, depending on how you read it, and I challenge you during that sermon to think about what your spiritual gift might be. And I don't know if you've thought any more about that or if you know what your spiritual gift is, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think, takes the idea of spiritual gifts and takes it even further. And I just want to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles open up there, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to start in verse 4 and just read verse 4 through 7. Paul writes this, Now there are varieties of gifts, 
but the same Spirit. There are varieties of services, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There are a variety of gifts and activities within any given church. So we're all different in the gifts that have been given to us, but they've been given to us by the same Spirit, and the purpose of these gifts is for the common good of the church, similar to what Paul says in Ephesians, to equip the church, to build up the church. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, I would challenge you to read this today at some point or maybe this week, Paul really gets into how the church is the body. And to be a complete body, you need all the parts. You need the hands. You need the feet. You need the kneecaps. You need the the nose and the ears and the eyes and the eyelids. You need all of it to be the whole body. And he says, you can't say to yourself, well, I'm the foot, so I'm, I'm not important because I'm not as important as the hand. No, all body parts are needed, and that's the way the body of Christ works. So we'll skip down, and I'll read verse 18 through 20. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. And then he goes on to say, the eye can't say, well, I don't need you to the ear, and vice versa, and on and on. And this whole chapter, Paul's talking about really spiritual gifts and how we all have different spiritual gifts. We all have a role to play. I don't know what your spiritual gift is, but maybe that's a good question to ask yourself. What is my spiritual gift? What do I need to contribute to this church, to serve in this church? And then again, like the spiritual pathways or like the different leadership styles, is how can you value and respect other perspectives? How can you value and respect people that are different from you? We don't all have the same spiritual gift. And that's designed on purpose by God. So instead of focusing on our differences, instead of dwelling on those and dividing over those and undervaluing somebody because they have a different gift, that's something to be celebrated. How very good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. We can do that by valuing and appreciating the diversity that we have. It's a good thing. And when we do that, we realize that God has given us multiple perspectives and we need each other's perspective because within my perspective or within your perspective, we're limited. And it takes a little humility to be able to admit that. So we need each other to really dwell in this good and pleasant unity that we read about in Psalm 133. And without each other, without your gift, without your personality, without your leadership style, without your spiritual pathway, we're not complete. I I read this story, came across this story actually. It happened in 2017. It was in Philadelphia. And a guy named David Lang put together what he called a symphony for a broken orchestra. So here's a little background on it. Uh, In the city of Philadelphia, they kind of around 2010, around there, they had cut funding dramatically to the music programs in all the public schools. So over the next seven years, most of the instruments that they had through wear and tear were broken and beat up and taped together. 
And they could not afford, because of the budget, they could not afford to buy the students new instruments. And for those who have been a part of the music department, were really upset about that. I mean, if you look in the pictures, you see one instrument was held together by blue painter's tape. One violin was completely broken in half, but the strings were still there, so they tried to piece it together the best they could. Some instruments were beat up and busted up, and they couldn't buy new ones. So what do you do with it? Throw them away? Well, this guy named David Lang decided that he was going to redeem those instruments. And he got all these broken instruments together, and somehow he was able to gather together over 400 people to play these broken instruments. And these 400 people consisted of professional musicians and amateur musicians and nine-year-olds, and 82-year-olds, and there was all sorts of peoples and talents and skills and backgrounds and ages that came to be a part of this orchestra. And somehow, some way, they were able to take like little spurts of sound here and there that they could get from these broken instruments, and they put on a concert for 40 minutes. And they said that it made a joyful and beautiful noise despite the fact that they were using broken instruments and not everybody was at the same level of musical ability, that somehow under the guidance of this director, they were able to put together some beautiful music. And when I read that story, I thought to myself, that is a great example of what the church should be. We are broken people. And we bring to the table what we have and what we have to offer. And it's incomplete. It's not perfect. And we're not all the same. We come from different backgrounds. But we come together as a church and we offer what we have under the guidance of a perfect director in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what Jesus can do with that is a beautiful thing. How good and pleasant it is, how very good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. How can we learn to value and respect each other, even though we're different, and to realize we need each other's perspective? It's not a source of competition. It's not something that we divide over. Rather, it's something that hopefully would unite us. And as a church, we come together as sinful, broken people pieced together, put together by a perfect Savior. So this morning as we offer this invitation, I don't know where you're at in your faith and your life and your walk with God, but if you need to take a step forward some way, somehow, if, if you want to be a part of this broken church put together by a perfect Savior, if you want to be baptized into Christ, we can talk to you about that. We can help you take that next step. We can arrange that with you, or if you need to be prayed for, if you're struggling in any ways, I say this every week, but I want you to know we really mean it. We have some elders that are here today in this first service, and they're available to you during this time. So please, if you need to respond in any way, come find one of us, and I want to invite you to stand and sing.